Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians together. Chapter 1, verses 11 through 14 today. Um, trust everyone's had a, a good week. Uh, enjoying last week together, of course, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But again, we come together on this morning uh, to proclaim the fact that our Savior is not dead, but is risen. Um, we'll begin by reading the whole context, uh, the eulogy or praise to God from verse 3 all the way through 14, and then we'll pray. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray together as Jesus did, holy is your name. Lord, you are great and glorious, a God unlike other gods. There is none beside you, and we worship today together and say you are holy. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we desire things that do not line up with the truth of who you are and who we are in Jesus Christ. We confess our rebellious spirits, our attitudes of aggrandizement and, and self-fulfillment, we ask, Lord, this morning that you'd give us a fresh view of who you are. God, we need your presence and we need your grace. So we call out for it, trusting, Lord, that you will be gracious. Be true to who you have been for the ages past, Lord. We call you to do that to us this morning, to change our hearts, that we would see the text, that your Holy Spirit would prick our hearts, and that we would obey because of your great love. We love you and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to start out just a kind of a question. Um, it's kind of a rambling, long question, but what, what part of society do you belong to? Or uh, maybe it's better to say, what important group uh, would you claim to be a part of? For each of us, you know, we have a little bit of a different priority than another person. We might want to align ourselves over here or align ourselves over there. But the question is still relevant for us. For each situation, like, who do you align yourself with? 
Like we could ask, maybe you have a strong family heritage. That's a big deal. You know, a well-known family, maybe a family of money or influence or maybe both. Um, maybe you come from a, a prominent town or a city that you're very proud of. Or perhaps you uh, graduated from a prestigious college or university. Uh, maybe instead you're a self-made person. Like that, that's who you would call yourself. I, I am a self-made man or woman. And have, have, you know, when I think about these things, maybe you consider that like, you finally made it into or desire to make it into a legitimate, meaningful, respectable position or relationship, whether that's in society or uh, you know, in, in some sort of culture or, or potentially maybe in your workplace. There's all kinds of different groups that we might aspire to be in or be claimed by, but sometimes it's not just as easy as desire and hard work and discipline. Sometimes we, uh, we can't get it due to our own financial situation, or perhaps we can't get into it because, you know, we just lack certain natural skills or abilities, or just to be honest, sometimes we're just not cool enough. We don't quite know why, but we can't make it into the group. And then there are other categories where who you are precludes you from being part of the group. For instance, in the realm of clout and politics, uh, I will never be a Kennedy or a Bush or a Clinton. Uh, in the realm of sports, I will never be a, an Ali or an Andretti or a Manning. Um, or in the business world, I'll never be a Rockefeller or uh, a Walton or a Vanderbilt. You know, I, I just don't qualify for any of those because I am who I am. I am a lounge. Um, and there are certain societies that I may want to join, but I simply can't because of who I am. Um, I will never be able to qualify to make it into that. And probably the most stark example um, of this notion is the fact that I cannot change my ethnicity or my race. Um, we are who we are. We're literally born into a certain group. My skin will always be freckly and pale. It's just the truth of it. I will always have a long face with a pointy nose and kind of a football-shaped skull. It is who I am, you know. I'll never be Indonesian or Spanish or, um, you know, Kenyan or uh, Japanese. I, I, I can't do anything to get myself into those groups. I cannot work my way into someone who I am not. This is kind of a silly illustration, I know that, but it helps us get into our passage today to think about the true divide between one people group and another. In God's province and wisdom, he had called a people to himself, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, and he revealed himself to them. He called Abraham to leave his country, to enter into an eternal covenant with God, and to be the father of many nations. And as time passes, we see God keep his covenant with Abraham. And eventually Jacob comes onto the scene and we watch as he becomes the father of the 12 tribes and really the foundation of Israel. But it's really in the Exodus where we see God take Israel from Egypt. And by God's strong hand, we see that these people are special to him and that he is going to do something unique with them that they are distinct from the rest of the peoples of the earth. In Exodus 19, the Lord called to Moses out of the mountain. He said to him this, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have, been, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice 
and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Lord set his love on the nation of Israel, but not maybe exactly the way that you and I might think. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses makes it very clear that the Lord is doing this for his own reasons. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers. God set his love on Israel, and he chose to work through this people for his eternal purposes that were far bigger than just national Israel. Now, but what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that God made Israel his treasured possession? If we consider for a moment uh, Romans 3, 2, we are told that the Jews have the advantage of God's revelation uh, of, of his law and his promises that they're proclaimed to him. Paul says it that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, that there is this advantage that they have. And we know that just because they had the oracles didn't mean that they were saved. It didn't mean that Israel somehow got it all right. Even just trying their best to do the law didn't save them. It was only by faith in God that a person would be saved from the wrath of God. Regardless, it is true that there is a distinction between Israel and the rest of the world, the Gentiles, between the Jew and the Gentile world. God keeps his promises to Israel. They continue to carry the promises with them, these oracles. He continues to keep his end of the deal. And and no matter how much they disobey, or they run away from God, or they break covenant, or they worship other gods, the Lord will not break his covenant with Israel. Now make no mistake, those who transgressed the covenant without faith in God were judged. They were not saved because they were Jews. There are many, many Jews who are receiving eternal judgment in hell because they did not trust God. But in the ongoing story of Israel's rebellion, uh, and, and in the midst of the judgment that God brought on them, this temporal judgment and the eternal, but in the midst of this story, you have an ongoing story of God's mercy and grace to his people. He sends judges and prophets and priests to proclaim hope in the promises of God, in the things that he told them that he would do. He sends messengers to rebuke Israel, to call them to repent, to show them the hope in the gospel, that the promises made to Abraham are still true for those who love him. For example, in the midst of judgment, Micah writes these words in Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Now, this is not just some blanket statement for all Jews. It's not like he's just going to pardon the iniquity of people whether they repent or not. 
No, this is a promise that God, who has made all these promises with Abraham, would certainly rescue his people and that he will not fail on his promises. He will raise up a remnant of believers, a a group within Israel who will trust and love and follow Yahweh. This God will somehow, someway, deliver on every single one of his promises that he made to Abraham. God did not interact in this way with other nations in the Old Testament. Consider this. It was he chose Israel. It was the Jews who were favored and special to God. And, and, and all Jews knew this. But, but unfortunately, many of, many of them misunderstood what this meant. They misunderstood the nature of their status as a chosen people. Many thought that they were automatically favored or special, and that meant automatic salvation, no matter, in a sense, what they did. The whole reason Paul, though, has to tell us that the Jews do have an advantage at all in Romans 3 is because he spent the first chapter and the second chapter tearing down the mistaken idea that if you're a Jew, you're in good shape. All that matters is if you're a Jew, that's all that matters. Paul tore those ideas apart in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans. And often the Jews, in their rebellion, did not hear the heart of the covenant, the heart of the law. They thought that if they were circumcised, if they were of Abraham, if they were Jews, if they were an Israelite, you know, then they were special. And they didn't, you know, they were just going to have to, they could keep, they do their best to keep the law, but they were special and they were worthy and they were God's people. They mistakenly believed that their Jewishness would save them. We know this is not true. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so we see that although the nation of Israel was God's chosen people, his treasured possession They were in need of God's mercy and grace just as much as any other person in the world. Jew-Gentile didn't matter. Jewish blood didn't make someone chosen or treasured. Jewish blood caused them to hear the law and the commandments and the promises loud and clear over and over and over by being in Israel. But we know that only Jews who keep the law can benefit from their Jewishness. Paul says it like this in Romans 2.25, for circumcision, that's being a Jew, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, every Jew to ever live has to reckon with the fact that the only way their circumcision, their Jewishness matters is if they never break the law. There's a problem there. We all know it. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. We all know that every natural-born person is a lawbreaker. And so we ask, what hope is there then for the Jew? You know, how could the Old Testament person be saved at all? I thought it was by being a Jew. This is the question that Paul is trying to get the Jews to wrestle with in the book of Romans. Who could possibly be saved? And how could it be done? Paul tells them, going from chapter 3 into chapter 4 of Romans, 
this beautiful thing called faith. And he, and he does so by illustrating through Abraham, the one they all depended on. Let's talk about Abraham. How is Abraham justified? How was he saved? By works or by keeping the law or maybe by being circumcised? No, not at all. Listen to Romans 4, 3 through 5. Paul says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, who can't fulfill the law, who does not be able to do that, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How could, or who could possibly be saved and how? Only the one that believed in the God of Abraham and trusted him and his promises. In the oracles given to the Jews, the law, the commandments, the promises, there was not only law, but there was grace. There was the Genesis 17 promises that were made to Abraham that God would give Abraham, he promised that he would give him offspring, that he would bring forth kings from him, that he would bless him and the world eternally, and it would be forever. Abraham believed God. He trusted him. Now, let's ask the question, did Abraham break the law? Absolutely, yes. If you look at his life, you know, of course he did. But the important thing that Paul brings out here is not Abraham's Jewishness. It's not, that's not what justified him. It was only through him loving and trusting God that Abraham could ever receive salvation. So we ask the question again, what did it mean to be a treasured possession? We understand that it simply can't be that you're a treasured possession if you're a Jew or you're from the nation of Israel, although that was a regular and wicked denial of the truth that many Jews believed. We understand only those who believe or trust God will be counted as righteous. Only those who are counted righteous, only those who are truly holy, can be called his treasured possession, his heritage, his kingdom of priests. In short, in the Old Testament, God's treasured possession were those who loved God with their heart, soul, and mind. Those who trusted God despite their sin and failure. And we realize that this truth, these oracles, were given to the Jewish people. They were given to national Israel. Now, why am I saying all that? I've spent 10 pages in my notes here talking about this. You know, are, are, what, why are we talking about the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles uh, you know, and what it really means to be a treasured possession and a heritage and all that? Aren't we supposed to be in Ephesians 1? Aren't we supposed to be talking about like the third of Paul's spiritual blessings and this praise to God and the benediction in chapter 1? Yes, we are. Exactly. That's exactly where we're going here. We're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. We're in the middle of the opening benediction, this praise to God from verse 3 to verse 14, and we're trying to understand where we're at in there. In verse 4, Paul told us that God chose us in him. And then in verse 7, we learned that we have redemption in him. But today we're moving on to verse 11. Now, originally, I had planned to handle the rest of this benediction in two more sermons. One to talk about our inheritance in verse 11 and 12, and then another one to talk about the Holy Spirit's sealing of us in verses 13 and 14. But to be honest, um, 
that was a little bit premature. I hadn't studied enough to grasp all that was going on in these verses. And I've come to realize that verses 11 through 14 are one unit, helping us better understand the nature of the mystery of God's will, the one that we saw back in verse 9. Now today, if you've got your Bible, I would like, if you can, to have your Bible out because there's a lot of stuff to look at here today that's important for you to see. Uh, I'm reading, uh, we're going to go through this in a minute, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV Version. Um, this is one of those times, though, that if you have a different translation, you may get a little bit confused, but we're going to do our best to actually work through this together and explain it. So let's go ahead and start this in verse 11 and kind of do a brief walkthrough here. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Okay, stop for a minute. Right away, um, I'm thinking, okay, in Christ, we, meaning Christians, just like the referent back in verse 4 and verse 7, he's talked about we already, he chose us, and in verse 7, we have redemption. So he's talking about we. We have some sort of inheritance coming to us, okay? Some kind of blessing that we'll get once Christ comes back or something like that. Okay, continue. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, this is good stuff. It sounds a lot like the other phrases that Paul has used to describe the spiritual blessings in Christ that we've received, both in election and even in redemption as well. That all this has been designed and predetermined in accordance with God's good pleasure and the working out of his will. Okay, so let's go on to verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Okay, hold on a minute here. This looks a, a, you know, a very specific way to talk about Christians in general. I mean, he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Is this, uh, is this, again, talking about all Christians so far? Uh, or is it shifting to talk about one particular section of people? Hmm, not sure. It's possible that Paul is just talking about the newness of Christianity, that they have come to believe and hope in Christ. Or it's possible he's talking about one section of those Christians too. Now, I want you to look at the next verse and notice the change in who he is talking to. No longer is he saying, we. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is certainly a twist. He's been talking about we this whole time, and now he's switched over to you. Why did he do that? Again, uh, why would he do that? Is it like arbitrary? Is he trying to do something specific here? We don't quite know, so let's keep moving on. Verse 14, who is the guarantee, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, so he's talking about the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee that uh, that inheritance that we're talking about back in verse 11 is sure. And then he says that we have the Spirit until we acquire possession of it. Like until we Christians die and go to heaven or when Christ comes back and get the things that he promised to us, our inheritance. And of course, this is all to the praise of his glory. So to sum up the whole thing, just to start here, it seems like he's saying, in Christ, we, early Christians, have an inheritance coming to us all in accordance with his goodwill and his glory to his glory, the praise of his glory. 
and that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who guarantees that we will one day get the inheritance promised to us in Christ. The basic idea, we get the inheritance and it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. On the surface, most of this seems to be right. Nothing theologically unsound, it makes sense. Although there are a few disconcerting things that kind of make the interpretation a little bit difficult. But as I studied this this week, as I kept working on it, as I continued doing my Greek study, I I tried to work through it carefully, and I kept coming up against two major things that were bothering me. It kept making me look back over and over and look at this a little more carefully. First, when I was looking at that first Greek verb in verse 11, in in, in yours, it's going to be translated in, in the ESV, it says, we have obtained an inheritance. That's all one Greek word. We have obtained an inheritance. I noticed that that Greek word was in the passive voice. But here in the ESV, it's translated as an active verb. In other words, we read it here in our Bibles, and it says, we have obtained. Uh, That's like an active voice thing. We are doing something. We have obtained. But again, the Greek word is in the passive voice, more like we have been obtained as an inheritance. Like the obtaining is happening to us. Again, this idea of a, a passive voice. This, and this bothered me. And I didn't know why, or I couldn't understand why the ESV translators would do something like this. But then there's a second thing. We'll come back to that. Then there's a second thing that kept me getting my attention. And it's something I kind of already pointed out here. In verse 12, Paul goes out of his way to talk about we as those who were first to hope in Christ. And then in verse 13, he changes from we to you. And he makes it even more distinct by saying you also. Uh, I was was really trying to wrestle this and, and figure out why Paul would go out of his way to mention these things if he's just generally talking about Christians. like Why would he add all this extra stuff? It doesn't quite seem to fit, and it kept nagging at me. So I continued my study, and as I did so, I began to see the pieces coming together in a little bit of a new way. Of course, like when you're studying, you want to go down deep and try to get the microscopic level and all the pieces and all the grammar and all the words, understand as best we can, and that was helpful. Uh, And it brought new questions, but then it wasn't until I pulled back that I was able to see some other things that really helped me. I, I did some other reading, and I started to, to look at the larger biblical context. And then I started to make a little more sense, and I started to think about the book overall. Um, you know, this is, this is helpful for me as I did so. so let, let's go back to the first thing, though, that I mentioned, just for a moment. The problem with the active and passive voice for the word obtained inheritance is the one that bothered me to start with. Those are my two problems here. The reason I'm bringing this back is because both of these are going to coincide and help us understand this. The verb that's used here is not a common one. In fact, it's called a hapax. It's only used once in the entire Greek New Testament. And this is the only place, right here, this is the only place it's used as a verb. As you can imagine then, when that happens, when a word is only used one time, it's really hard to get a semantic range or how it's used other places. There's nothing to compare it against how other writers use it in their writing. So this makes it very difficult and potentially awkward for the interpreter into English. More than this, the rest of the surrounding context seems to be pointing to the fact that we're receiving all these things from God. Election, redemption, adoption, 
So naturally, it seems like we would be receiving an inheritance. The ESV translators, of course, are not crazy. They're not irresponsible. But I do believe, with humility, like I say this, I do believe they've chosen the wrong aspect here. Um, And after consulting many other Greek grammarians and good biblical scholars, it seems right to take this not as active as they do here, but actually as passive. But this is no small change. It means that we are not the subject of the verb. We are the object of this verb. Something or someone is acting upon us. The verb is happening to us now. To make it simple, cut through that, the translation is not, we have obtained an inheritance, but rather, we have been obtained as an inheritance. Meaning that the main actor of this whole eulogy, God the Father, is the one doing the obtaining. But before I go any further, the ramifications of that conclusion alone, we need to talk about the second problem. It's going to tie in here. The confusion about we and you are are a struggle for us. I began thinking about the nature as I was thinking about the whole letter and trying to think, okay, what is Paul doing in the book of Ephesians, in this letter to the Ephesian church, or in in these people that he's sending it to? And I thought about the fact that in Jesus Christ, and we talked about this and we talked about the purpose of Ephesians, in Jesus, the church is proclaiming the mystery of God. And if you remember, or you can look there if you want to, in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Huh. The mystery revealed is played out in such a way that through the church, you can find this in verse 10, through the church, which includes Jews and Gentiles, the wisdom of God is made known. A continual theme for Paul is the uniting of the Jew and the Gentile in the church of Jesus Christ. And then I started to see it. I started to think this through and say, these verses are not describing a third and a fourth blessing for all believers. Like the third is an inheritance and the fourth is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. This is about the fact that election and the redemption, and the Father's inheritance is not something for only Israel to experience. The amazing thing that we ought to bless and praise God about is that in Christ, every spiritual blessing has come to every person and every ethnicity. It is not only for the Jews, but it is for the Gentiles. At this point, I'm telling you, in my study, like my head is exploding because all these different pieces are starting to come together. Oh, my goodness. So let's, let's do this together. I'm going to give you another walk through this. And this time, understanding these pieces will help us as we're guided through these couple verses. In verses 11 and 12, we learn that the we that Paul is talking about is Paul and other Jewish Christians those who are truly, in a sense, national Israel, who have trusted in Christ. Those who trusted God, who have waited, but now realize that God's promised Messiah has come in Jesus Christ. It's not just the promises of Abraham, but rather now they look back to Jesus as the one who fulfilled every single one of Abraham's promises. 
and that he truly is the Messiah. Thus, it's, it's just like Abraham in that they believed. But it is different in that they now know that God's promises all came to perfect conclusion in Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth, the, the real person that they knew. This person, Jesus Christ, was the one that they now could believe in. He was true Israel. He fulfilled every part of the law. He did not break it. He fulfilled the covenant. He kept the covenant perfectly that no one else ever could. And thus, it is in him, notice that again, right? In him that these Jews have hope. And it's in him that they hope in. They were the first to hope in him because they were spiritually alive through faith in God. They believed God. They trusted Christ alone. Verse 11 and 12 are about the Jews who believe. These people, the Jewish Christians, have obtained an inheritance by God. Uh, excuse me, they have been obtained. I said, see, I said it the wrong way. They have been obtained as an inheritance by God. Now, at this point, <clears throat> you need to know something that I, I think is super cool. And hopefully it will begin to help connect us kind of to the introduction. The term that is used here for uh, we have obtained an inheritance, or as the, the correct way to say that in the passive is that we have been obtained as an inheritance. The same root word here is the same root word in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, to describe God's precious people, his heritage, his possession, his portion. Now, just for example, I'm just, there's, there's a ton of these, but I'm just going to say Psalm 33:12. He says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Same, same term here. All that nerdy stuff to say that when Paul talks about the Jewish Christians being obtained as an inheritance, he is speaking in the same categories as he did when he called Israel his treasured possession. Now in Ephesians 1, we're seeing that this is coming true in Jesus Christ. And he is saying that this is happening. Paul says that in Christ, Jewish Christians, that is those who have trusted or hoped in Christ, in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, these Christians were graciously predestined to be an inheritance, a possession, a heritage of God to the praise of his glory. It's settled now in Jesus. It's finally come to its, its, its intended spot where they are to the praise of his glory, his inheritance. They have been inherited. They have been claimed as God's portion. But you and I may ask, as you can see, uh, what about the Gentiles? What about them? Are, are the Jewish Christians the only one, like verse 12, are Jewish Christians the only one that are to the praise of his glory? What about us? Listen to verse 13. In him you also, so important, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In verse 13, we learn that the Gentiles, the you also, are sealed with the Holy Spirit, thereby showing that both Jew and Gentile Christians are inherited by God. They are his possession, his portion. In verse 13, we learn that the Gentile Christians, having now heard the truth, the, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, 
Of course, this is because it's being preached to them by the apostles and by all that are going out from Pentecost. Um, these Gentile Christians believed in Jesus Christ, in Him. And then on to the, you know, this is the coolest thing. They, they aren't just told that they're going to be accepted by God. Oh, good. We're second rate, but we're, we kind of made it in. That's good. No. They are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit of God. This is the one that he had promised to Israel through several different prophets, saying that this one will be poured out on you. This is a huge deal. This is what so many looked for for so long. And here Paul says that you, Gentiles, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When Paul uses the word seal, he's making sure that you and I understand ownership, that this is God's. These are his. This is God's seal on those that belong to him. He marks his people, who are not Jews, by the way, by giving them something that he promised to the nation of Israel back in Joel 2, Jeremiah 31, and other places as well. This is an authenticating action taken to show that these Gentile Christians are every bit the same as Jewish Christians. They are God's possession. Paul then steps back to tell them, both the Gentile and the Jewish Christians, that the Spirit, the one who is even sealing the Gentiles, <coughs> excuse me, is the guarantee of our inheritance. I'll say that again so my cough doesn't interrupt. <clears throat> Paul then steps back to tell the Gentile and the Jewish Christians that the Spirit, this Spirit, the one who is even sealing the Gentiles, is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, now, let's see what Paul's doing there. He said, we, meaning Jews, Christians who are, I mean, Jewish Christians. Then he's talking about you, Gentile Christians. And now he's talking about our inheritance. Our meaning Jew and Gentile people who trust Jesus Christ as God's people. They are both his possession and inheritance. But he makes it even more explicit in verse 14. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? The Spirit is the guarantee or the, the down payment of our inheritance. It's part of all that we will get. It's a guarantee that God will come through in all the promises that he's made. In other words, the fact that the Gentile and Jewish Christians now have the Holy Spirit of promise points to two things. First, what you and I are experiencing now, being sealed by the Holy Spirit, is a foretaste, like I said, a down payment and a guarantee that God will dwell with us and that we will someday know him in totality with nothing separating us whatsoever our eyes will be not just by faith, but we will see him as he is. He will redeem his possession, his inheritance. But there's a second thing. The way this is this worded, as you see it, is our inheritance. This is really important. Um, after talking about the Jewish Christians and then the Gentile Christians, like I said, he's bringing the two groups together. Both of them have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. And this points to the fact that they are both part of that inheritance. Again, going back to that governing verb here, that first thing, it's a passive, that means that they have been inherited. God's treasured possession is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. 
Now, if you're reading along in that last verse, <laughs> there's another pesky issue here that's annoying. I wish I didn't have to work through it. But at the end, the ESV translators tried as best they could to smooth out some really difficult wording. But this last phrase says, until we acquire possession of it. For the sake of time, I'm going to simply say that this is an unfortunate rendering of the phrase. The translators have added a subject where there is none. So in Greek, there's no we, there's no, there's no subject there, and they've added a verb where there is not a verb. It's not to say that it's all wrong, and they're making sense of what they can in this section. And again, it's not like it's heresy. It's right. It's true. But that's not what the Greek is doing here. It is better translated simply as a weird statement, the redemption of the possession. Now, to make this simple, and again for the sake of time, this is simply referring to the time when God will take and redeem His inheritance, His heritage, His possession. Is talking about God consummating history and His people will dwell with Him forever in perfection. And it further cements the idea that this is not about us getting an inheritance, but rather about Him and His sure work to possess His people. It is certainly true. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's certainly true that Christians will receive a reward in Christ at His return. But this completely misses the point of the text if we try to make it fit here. This is about the fact that election and redemption and being the Father's inheritance is not something for only Israel to experience. In Christ, every spiritual blessing has come to every person and ethnicity. It is astounding that God, in Christ, would bring us into this treasured heritage, this chosen people. By this time, we, we realize that neither the Jews nor the Gentiles are deserving of His great covenant-keeping love. We've seen that already in the verses. This is all of God's grace. And yet, here we are, Jews, Gentiles, being called because of Jesus Christ, being in Him, being called His treasured possession, according to the counsel of His will. I mean, this truly brings us to resound with both verse 12 and then with verse 14, the way that Paul says it, all of this resounds to the praise of His glory. It makes us step back and say, wow, this is what He has done. Now, let's talk about what in the world this means for us. I mean, it's incredible what's happening here. Uh, I mean, this is thousands of years ago, but this is still true for you and me. Some potentially, I don't know, some of that are listening to this may be Jews, but majority, I'm guessing, are probably Gentiles. And that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit is absolutely astounding. But I have to admit, there's a little bit of a dark side to this. Um, the Jews were blinded by the wicked one. They did not believe the gospel. They did not believe the promises, but rather they relied on their own Jewishness to save them. Some simply trusted in their circumcision and their bloodline, and they lived how they wanted to, being confident that, you know, since they were Jews, they'd be fine. They were born a Jew, they'd be all right. Others trusted in their law-keeping abilities. You know, they were Jews, they had the law of God, they're supposed to do it, and all they had to do was keep it to be good, to be a good Jew. Tragically, though, both of these are not a part of God's treasured possession. It doesn't matter how Jewish they are. 
If they do not trust Christ or trust God and his promises, they have no part in him. They are not his treasured possession. They will not be saved, but rather they will receive judgment for the wicked rebellion against God. The truth is that some of you potentially are in this boat. And this is a harsh reality, but it's loving and it's right. And I've prayed for grace even as we talk about this. That those that here would receive this with humility and be able to hear the truth. That Satan would not blind eyes. You may not be a Jew, but depending on, you know, maybe you're not worried about your nationality or depending on, you know, your, your status as a, in a specific family. But maybe you're confident that your claim as a Christian is good enough. As long as you claim to be a Christian and you feel like, you know, that's going to make sure that you're, you're going to be fine no matter what you end up doing, as long as you're able to say that. And then others may be so proud that although you wouldn't say it, you functionally believe that you can prove it to God that you are a Christian by your good works. And then as you live up to it, you're like, yes, I, I can do this thing. I've been able to do this. Your self-righteousness stands in the way of true repentance and true trust in God alone. Friends, if either of these things describe you, if either of these things are true, whether you call yourself a Christian and that's enough, or you are working so hard and your self-righteousness is what's going to make it through and you can give that over to God and show Him that you're worthy of salvation, friend, that is not true. You must repent. You cannot continue in this sin. If you continue in these attitudes and rebellion, you will never be his treasured possession. And instead, you will remain in your sins. And as Paul will later tell us, you will prove yourself to be a child of wrath, God's wrath. So if I can encourage you, there is hope. There is the promise of the gospel. But Abraham taught us it's not by his circumcision or his Jewishness or his works or his law-keeping. He couldn't do it. It was only through faith in Jesus Christ. It was only that God would fulfill his promises. So I encourage you, repent of your sin, from your law-breaking and your rebellion, and place all of your trust in Jesus Christ alone. For you that are Christians, that do trust Christ alone and understand your spiritual bankruptcy, I want to encourage you a few things. If your hope is in Christ... If you've heard the gospel, and like it tells us here, that you've believed in Jesus, then you are no longer outside of Israel. What's happening here is you are not second-tier person in the kingdom of God. You are the people of God. You are true Israel. You are the remnant. You are numbered with those Jews who have hoped in Christ. You are, as uh, Paul says in Romans 2, 26-29, a Jew inwardly. Peter tells us the same thing. I mean, he is talking to those who have tested, uh, excuse me, have tasted of Jesus Christ, the living stone. And he says this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the marvelous working of God on our behalf, that he would make us one 
with our Jewish brothers. That we would be um, brought near. That he would extend the name of treasured possession to Gentiles like me and you. To include Gentiles that did not know anything about the nation of Israel. We understand that it is God's good grace that has made us his and his alone through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, I don't know what kind of identity that you wished that you had or what group that you wanted to be connected with. But if I can remind you of your truest identity, that the one who made the entire universe and spoke it into existence and sent his son, he calls you his possession. Those who have trusted in Christ, doesn't matter how great of a family you have or a prestigious college degree, or I don't care. Do you understand that you are his treasured possession? And this, has, this is nothing for pride. There's nothing to say, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. No, it causes severe humility and understands who we are before him and causes us to bow down in worship to the God who made wicked Gentiles his treasured possession in Jesus Christ. So we say with the apostle, to the praise of his glory. May we rest in this truth. May we understand this truth and hold it dear to us as we too cry out and that we proclaim that we, his treasured possession of nothing of our own, are to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your text, for your word, that you would reveal yourself to us. It is too great for us so many times, Lord. But yet as we look and your Holy Spirit works in our hearts, and as we understand and we think and we meditate, Lord, you continue to work in us. Lord, we thank you for all of your great love in Jesus Christ. We deserve nothing but hell and to be children of wrath. But Lord, not only have you elected us, not only have you given us redemption, but Lord, we have been now caused to be your inheritance. We are your treasured people and sealed by the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what you will do one day when you come back for your people. We ask for your help as we continue on this week. I pray your blessing on your people. May they honor you through what they say and do. Lord, would this truth drive deep into their hearts and would we be free with the gospel message so that we might be a light so that others too, other wicked Gentiles, might know the saving power of Jesus Christ. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.